How many need to know that Jesus is speaking to us today? Is that important to us? Yes, it is. We're going to look at Revelation today, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and we'll get over into chapters 2 and 3. Michelle, is that right? The first verse, what, how, did, how did the song start out? You don't have to sing it over again, but... Well, it's, it seems like it said something like, uh, talking about the nearness of the Lord, and that he, he's, give us a picture that Jesus is not far away. I need to know, I need to know it's him. I need to know he's near. Not, not someone who's far away. And actually, that's what we're going to talk about today. So, we can, we can say, we can hope that the Lord would use the song and use the word that we're going to read, this passage of Scripture, and the message today has got a real short title. It is, I Know. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus who says over and over in this passage, He says, I know. We're going to think about that, what Jesus knows and how He knows it. And what difference does it make? And so, I want you to look in Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading the very first verse. Revelation 1, it's the last book of the Bible, and I'll begin in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed 
with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now we're going to read the rest of the chapter all together. So if you can see the screen, let's read from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. All together. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Praise God. The reason I wanted us all to take part in reading is, why? Because it said there's a blessing to this prophecy, to this book, and how it begins. Did you hear what I Read in verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. I was reading it aloud. I wanted you all to read it aloud to get this blessing. And those who hear. So we're, we all heard the beginning of this book of prophecy. And so the blessing's ours. Oh, I forgot. You've got to read on in that verse. Yes, blessed is the one who reads. Yes, blessed is the one who hears, and blessed are those who keep what is written in. So the blessing isn't just in the reading, it isn't just in the hearing, it is in the reading and the hearing and the keeping of what we read. So we're going to pray now and ask the Lord to help us as we have read, as we have heard, and we're going to hear more, and that the Lord would help us to keep what we read and hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy today that you brought us to this place at this hour. We thank you that you've given us breath to breathe today. You've given us a heart that beats today. You've given us voices to lift up to you in praise. You've given us ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you give us true ears to hear deep down in our hearts that we will not only read and not only hear then, but that we will keep what we read that it'll make a difference in our lives. Not only what we have sung in the songs to lift up our voices in praise to you. Lord, let that play a part in all that's done today and in what we hear from you. Lord God, we pray that you'll give faith where there is no faith. Lord, where there is weak faith, that you will strengthen weak faith. Where there is flourishing faith, that you'll help it to flourish even further and bring forth fruit to your glory to the glory of the name of Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, we're just going to look at a little bit of this book of prophecy. So we're not going to get too far in the book, but we're going to look through some verses in chapters 2 and 3. So this was just an introduction, chapter 1. I didn't want you all to have to read the whole chapters 1 through 3, so, we're, so we won't be here too much more than an hour and a half or so. But I want us to think about what we've read and what we're going to hear, what we're going to read. Now, this book is a, is a neglected book because sometimes it's too intimidating. Sad to say, sometimes we're maybe a little afraid to look in it, to read it. Uh, some of us preachers neglect to preach it. I, I'm sorry, even on my own part. Sometimes we're intimidated by it. Boy, there's so many mysteries in this book, and there are. There's so much symbolism, and there is. So many things that we're not used to seeing on an everyday basis. How many, how many dragons have we seen lately? Not too many. So sometimes it's a little intimidating, and so we, we neglect to read this. Oh, but there's a blessing. I think there's the only book in the Bible that says, blessed is the one who reads this and those who hear it and those who keep it. There's a blessing for all the Bible, of course. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and this book is in the Word of God, isn't it? So let's read it, and let's pray the Lord will help us as we read. So we don't have to be intimidated by this book because you know what this book is? It says it right in the first sentence, in the first verse of the first chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. How many need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ today? I do. And this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this book is a book of worship. We've been worshiping this morning as we've gathered. I, I hope and trust that we've been worshiping as we've sung these songs of the faith. And as we read the word. And as we encourage one another, that can all be a part of worship. And it is worship that we would recognize and see as the song was sung just a little while ago by Michelle. She, she wanted to see the Lord. She wanted to hear from the Lord. She was expressing, I hope, the desire of all of our hearts that we would see Jesus not as a faraway somebody, but as a nearby one who knows us, who knows what we need, and wants to speak to our hearts today. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It ought to cause us to do what John did. Did you, did you read along with me? When it says that he heard the Lord's voice, what did he do in verse 12? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw all the things we saw, seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. I wonder who that is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Somebody would say, well, if I would see that, I would bow down and worship too. I want us to see that by faith today. This is, this is the Jesus we sing about. He's high and lifted up and glorious. And it says, His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came out a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. It'd be my prayer today that we would do a little dying. That as we read something like this, even if we don't get any further, and maybe the preacher will get stumbled up right now, 
And we won't get any farther and won't read the little outline of God. Even if all we've read is just, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and He is mighty and powerful, and He's shining all glorious, and we would fall down on our faces and worship Him, that would be enough. And we'd say, Amen, Lord Jesus. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for me. I don't worship this Lord enough. Can any of us say, I, I, I worship Jesus enough. I give Him my hour on Sunday morning. I'd like for my own soul to feed on a word like this every day. Every day. And say, Lord Jesus, You are glorious. I worship You today. And on a Sunday morning, that's even, even more appropriate, isn't it? This is the Lord's day. Guess what day this was that old John was doing all this? Said it was the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day. We worship Him today. He fell down as though dead. I need to do a little dying like that. But what did the Lord do? He laid His right hand on me in verse 17, saying, Fear not. Don't be afraid. You know, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, He's right there with us, with His right hand. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I am for you. Praise God. Well, we've got a real simple outline. If you're note takers, a couple of you are taking notes. You don't have to take notes. Take them in your heart. But it's a real simple outline. It's got one point. Point one is I know. I-K-N-O-W. I know. Jesus is going to say in the next two chapters, and we're not going to read all two chapters, but this was a passage, wasn't it, that Jesus directed John to write letters? How many letters? Seven. You were good listeners, good readers. Seven letters. To whom? Seven churches. These are in Asia, in western, what we now call Turkey. Seven churches. Jesus is sending them letters. And they wound up in our Bible. How many other letters to churches are there in the New Testament? Well, there are several, right? Colossians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. These letters were written to churches. Well, Jesus is writing letters to churches. Seven of them. And to each of those seven churches, He says... I know, I know something about them. I know what they're doing. I know what they're thinking. I know the trouble they have. I know the tribulation they're suffering. I know, Jesus says, to them. And I believe Jesus would say that to Smithfield. Here's a church, not in Turkey, but in Kentucky. Here's a church. How long has this been? On the door right out there, it says 1802 or over there or over there both. That's a long time. 220 years? And Jesus would say, I believe, to this church and to every church where the Gospels preach, His churches, 
He says, I know where you are. I know how you're doing. I know what you need. And I'm the one to give you what you need. But let's, before we look at the I knows, let's think of this. How does he know? How does he, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, right? He was crucified, dead and buried. Then we believe raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. How far away is heaven? Nobody's measured it yet. How does he know? How can he make a claim, I know, and he's going to give some details about what he knows. How can anybody make such a claim, I know? Well, he knows because of who he is. And what did this passage reveal of who this Jesus is? Is he just a man that lived and died and left a legacy and he's gone? Well, you don't say this about somebody who's just a man and lived and died and left a legacy. It says in verse 5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You don't say that about a man or a woman, do you? You say that about God. You say that about God. And you don't think of this one who's, I don't know if he's capable of knowing every detail of life unless he would make a claim like this in verse 17. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. What's that mean? What kind of claim is that? That's a pretty radical claim. If you ever meet somebody out on the street and they, and they say, I am the first and the last, you probably ought to commit them to a crazy house somewhere or get them some help because they're not the first and the last. That place has already been taken. By whom? Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God himself is the first and the last. He's the... Alpha and the Omega, doesn't it say here? And then turn all the way over to the last chapter of Revelation. It's not very far, just a few pages. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Those kind of claims were made in the Old Testament as well. There is someone who said, I am first and last. In Isaiah chapter 43, we won't turn there. Let me just quote it. The Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh, God, the Almighty God, the one and only true God said, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, that is Jehovah, Yahweh God, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Who is the first and the last? Yes. Amen to both. 
Because Jesus is God. Right? That's a place for us to all say, Amen. Jehovah God says in that to the prophet Isaiah, I am the first and the last. Jesus says to these churches through John, and He says to Smithfield and to each one of us, I am the first and the last. That's what Jesus said. He's taking the words of Jehovah God, because that's who He is, and He speaks them to us today. Is it too hard for Jehovah God, Almighty Father, Jesus Christ, is it too hard for Him to know the everyday intimate details of your life and mine? Surely not. Because if that's too hard for Him, then how in the world is He going to get me through this life? And how's He going to get me all the way to heaven if He can't do that? He can do that. He does do that because He's God. So He knows. He can say, I know because of who He is and also because of where He is. Where is He? Yes, we can say He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. All these that we just read, when it says that there's God on the throne, and go th you know the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of things said about the throne, and, and that the Son, who's the Lamb of God, who's been slain and raised from the dead and then ascended to the heavens to be at the right hand of the Father before the throne of the Father. So He is in heaven and yet that's not the only place He is. What did I read? What can you read in the Revelation 1? In verse 12 it says, Again, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Well, that's a pretty picture, but what in the world are those lampstands? The churches. How do we know that? Well, that's what Jesus says. Look at the end of the chapter. In verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars. See, that's a mystery. We would never figure it out. What is the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands? So Jesus tells us. As for the mystery of the seven stars, you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. The word angel is the same word as messenger. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Where is Jesus? Well, He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Where else is He? He's in church. He's in church. He's in His churches. He says, hey, I'm writing a letter to you seven churches. And I'm writing it through my prophet, this one named John. And I know who you are. I know what you're going through. I know the plans that I have for you. I know all of this because of who I am, but also because I'm not far away. I'm with you. Isn't that a precious promise? Jesus said... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you. How long? Always, even to the end of the age. Where is Jesus? Is he close enough to know you and me? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's in church. Is it a radical thing for us to think about Jesus is in church today? What day is this? April the 24th, 2022. Jesus in church today? I sure hope so. If he's not, we're wasting our time. If he's not, we're wasting our lives. Let me say that again. If Jesus ain't in his church, we are wasting our time and we're wasting our lives. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is with the Father, and is with us in his churches. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. If Jesus said it, is it true? If what Jesus says ain't true, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our lives. We're wasting our hope. We're not wasting our time and our lives, brothers and sisters. Because we've got a Savior who knows us. He knows what He aimed to accomplish on our behalf. What did He aim to accomplish? Go back. Read in verse 7. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Was that the aim of Jesus in dying on the cross? Yes. Is He accomplishing that? Making that true in life after life after life after life in His churches? Yes. And then does He just take a stab at that and goes to play golf? No, that's still what he's doing. Applying it to life by life by life, church by church by church. And he knows exactly how to do it because he's God. He knows because of who he is, because of where he is. You know, there's never a time when Jesus would have to say, send out an angel and say, would you go scout out what's happening in Smithfield? And report back to me tomorrow. And then the report comes back and Jesus would have to say, I didn't know that. That sure is a surprise to me. That's not the picture I get reading this passage, is it? Is it what you get out of this? I hope not. Jesus will say to each church, I know because he does know. Because he is God. Because he is near. How far would you have to go to go away from this one? So that he wouldn't know. Some of you know the 139th Psalm. I won't read it all, but let me read a short portion of that Psalm for you. Many of you know this Psalm and exactly what it says. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And the O Lord is O Jehovah God, O Yahweh God, one and only true God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. What business is that of, of his? He is God. He ought to know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. How can anybody discern the thoughts of somebody else? Unless they're God. He ought to know my thoughts, shouldn't he? You know, we can come in here and we can have our thoughts all covered up. I can cover my thoughts up from you guys. And you're covering up your thoughts from me. But we're not covering them up from the Lord. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. How many? All of it. I know some folks in my church, and I'm ashamed to say that I'm a, one of the pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church. There are folks in my church, don't tell them this if you report back to them, that I'm telling you all this. There are some folks in my church who hide their thoughts from the rest of us. Not in a good way. I mean, it's, it's fine to hide some of our thoughts. I don't want to know all your thoughts, just so you know. Some of what your thoughts are none of my business because I'm, I'm me and you're you. And I'm not going to share with you all, all my thoughts either. But there are folks in our church, I'm sad to say, and they hide a lot of their thoughts. And some of their thinking is pretty way off. Not, not in conformance with what we've read in Revelation 1. And, and that shames me to think that. We ought to have thoughts that are for the Lord and in accordance with His Word and so much so that we, we would be glad to proclaim them and not be ashamed of any of them. Joy and I heard some things from a member of our church. We're trying to counsel a couple Saturday night. I think it was Saturday night. I can't remember. Saturday morning. Unbelievable things. Ungodly things. And I'm thinking, how can it be? And they've, one of them has hidden such things from us, from me, for a couple of years now. But not one of those thoughts were not known by the Lord of the church. And I'm not trying to, you don't, I've not told you their name, but I'll tell you my name. My name is Doug Sturgeon. And, and for me to look in the mirror and say, the Lord has known, has known and does know every one of my thoughts. All of them. And yours. That ought to put the fear of the Lord in us. The Lord says, I know. 
The psalmist wrote in 139, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. When Jesus says, I know, he knows everything about you and me. And yes, it ought to put the fear of God in us, and yet it also ought to comfort us that the Lord knows not just every idle word that he speaks, but he knows every hope and aspiration I have in my heart for his glory. He knows that. He counts that. He's aware of that. And he put that desire there in the first place. Praise God. Well, he knows. Let's look. What does he know? Well, to each church he says those words, I know. In Ephesian, to the Ephesian church he writes, in chapter 2, now look at verse 2. I know your works. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Jesus says, I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 19. To the church at Thyatira, he's writing. In verse 19, I know your works. I know your works. I know what you do. I know the works of your hands. I know the works of your hearts. I know your works in church. I know your works on the job. I know your works at home. I know your works on the mountain. I know your works in the valley. I know the works in the morning. I know your works in the darkness. I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. To the church, this is in Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Asia. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He goes on and describes their works. Praise God, he knows the works of those who are his. But that brings up a question. If he knows our works, does he only know Part of the works? Or does he know pert near all of them? I'd say not only pert near, but 100%. He knows the good works and he knows the bad. I'm, I'm going to say this, Michelle. He knows the perfect works and he knows what comes up a little bit less than perfect. And I believe what we do in Jesus' name, even what's weak in our, on our part, he, see, he knows the heart where that comes from. I'm going to say you sang that perfectly, sister. So That was great. I wish I could preach the way you sang. But he knows our stumblings, and he knows... Our difficulties in doing the works that we do, that he gives us to do, and that we have a heart to do, he knows. He says, I know your works. Well, 
If you read, just go back now to chapter 2. And what he said to the church at Ephesus, what, what does he say? In verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Now let's count them up. You all count with me the works that Jesus knows that the church at Ephesus, they do. I know your works. We'll count that as one. Your toil. What number are we on? Two. And your patient endurance. Three. I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. Four. But have tested those who call themselves our apostles and are not. Five. We'll say that's five. You found them to be false. We'll count that all as number five. I know you are enduring patiently. That's six. And bearing up for my namesake, that's seven. And you've not grown weary, that's eight. Eight good works. Praise God. I'd count that as amazing, stupendous. And I believe Jesus does too, because he commends them for it. But then what does he say? In verse 4, I have this against you. No, that's, I didn't read all, the first word is, but, but I have this against you. What does he have against them? You have abandoned the love you had at first. But Jesus, aren't eight good works and only one bad one? Isn't that okay? What is the percentage of, that'd be, there's nine things there listed and eight are good. You mathematicians, what percentage is, what grade is that? Pretty good. Well, it's a, whatever, 88 or 89, that's at least good for a B, isn't it? Do they still give out grades in school? I'm not sure. They do? One who would know. 88's pretty good, isn't it? Or 89, whatever that percentage is. That's a pretty good grade. And it is. I think Jesus commends them for it. But he says, but I have this against you. Here Jesus goes to meddling a bit. Does the Lord of the church have a right to say, I see your works, and eight of them, here are eight I'm listing out, I know eight of them, and they're wonderful and great, and they glorify me, but I have this against you. Does the Lord Jesus have the right to say that? To Smithfield? Can he say, I commend you in this. I commend you in this. I commend you in this. I commend you in this and that and the other and praise God for all of it. But here's something you need to work on. Does he have a right to say that to you, church? Does he have a right to say that to me, individual Christian? Yes. Why? How does he have that right? Because he's Lord of the church. When it says he's in the, when he's in the church, it says that John saw Jesus where? At the lake? Now, I'm not talking about in church here, in this building. I'm talking about he's in, the, in this church, right? He's in this church. He sees what's going on. And he loves much of it. In the two of the churches we're going to think about, we're not going to read all this, but Smyrna and Philadelphia, he says nothing by way of reproving or accusing them or saying, but, he doesn't say but to Philadelphia or Smyrna. He says, it's all good. Now, do we think that means that they were actually sure enough perfect? I kind of doubt it. But he said, 
Philadelphia, I mean Ephesus, mixing up my churches. You're doing great, but I've got this against you. And it seems to be kind of important, doesn't it? What does he say? You've left your first love. The love you had at the first, you've left it. It might be they were doing a bunch of stuff. Man, eight things listed out, great. But they were doing it not out of love for him or not out of love for one another. I don't know. Here's, here's the point I'm making. Jesus knew that. And should that surprise us? No. Jesus knows us. He knows us. He knows his church. Because he's real close by. And he notices things. And if, I hope you're hearing many things from this scripture, but if we don't hear everything, at least hear this. The Lord notices things. And I'm sad to say, and it, it makes me sad to even think it could be true, some Christians would like to assume that Jesus doesn't notice a lot of things. Like we can get things over on him and he won't notice. He won't notice that we're doing this stuff we do without a heart of love. He'll just see that at least we're producing. No, he notices. He knows. How does he know? What did we say? He knows because he's God. And he knows because he's here. And that ought to make us wake up and say, Lord, I want to do what I do for you for the reason that you would put in my heart. Out of a heart of love. Because you notice. And it matters. The second thing I want us to think about this knowing stuff is the Lord notices and it matters to Him. And I think it might change the way I live. If each and everything that I'm wanting to do to please Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, not that I do it out of a cowering fear and says, oh, I want to make sure that I do this perfectly or else I'm going to fall down on my face and the Lord's going to smack me. But that He knows why I do it. And he knows, church, why we're doing what we're doing. You know, a, a church can have some momentum and say, well, we do this because we, well, we're supposed to every Sunday. We, what time do we get here for Sunday school? 10 o'clock? Come here to this worship time at 10.45? You know, sometimes that can just have a momentum behind it. We, we just do it because, well, we just do it. It might... It might give a whole new meaning to living for Jesus if I say, I want to do this on purpose. For His glory, it matters why. It matters how. He talks about the other churches. He says, I know, the second church, Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That's in verse 9. That means He knows our circumstances. Somebody might say, well, such and such church, they can do so much more or so much better they're so much more encouraged because their circumstances are better. My circumstances are poor. Uh, look at the third church, Pergamum, verse 13. I know where you dwell. You know that Jesus knows where you live. He knows where the church is. This church right here lives in 
Smithfield, Kentucky. Seems like a pleasant place. I like it out here. So, I mean, just so peaceful. It's peaceful all the time here in Smithfield, isn't it? Nary a thing ever happens that's never a crossword is spoken. It's just all flowers and sunshine. Some of Jesus' churches are in pretty rough neighborhoods. This one at Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Their church was in Satan's throne, Asia. You might say, I know what your circumstances. Jesus knows the circumstances for Smithfield. He knows your challenges and what limitations we have. Doesn't he know? In Philadelphia, that good church, verse 8 of chapter 3, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. They're weak. Another church was poor. Another church is in poverty. Another church is in tribulation. And none of that was unknown to Jesus. He knows where we are. He knows who we are. He knows what we teach. It matters what we teach. Look at there again, Pergamum. What did Jesus know about them? They did some good things. They even had martyrs who died for the faith. One of them was named Antipas in verse 13. But it goes on down to say, verse 15, you also have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I don't know who those folks are. Nicolaitans. But they're mentioned twice. I also mentioned over in Ephesus. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hate's a bad word, and we, sometimes we say you're never supposed to hate anything. Did you know Jesus hates something? What does he hate? Hates sin, and he hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever they were. I have no idea what they taught. As far as the details, don't have a clue. Guess who has a clue? The Lord himself, God knows, Jesus knew. And it mattered to him. He said to Ephesus, you hate that doctrine, and I praise you for that. For the other church, Pergamum, he said, you've got somebody there teaching that doctrine, and that matters to me. Why does it matter? Why do these things matter so much to Jesus? It's his church. He loves the church. He wants it to flourish. He wants it to grow. He wants it to bring forth fruit. He knows it can't bring forth fruit, good fruit, if it's messing with the wrong doctrine. It matters. Smithfield, what does the Lord of the church know of you? You need to ask yourselves that. Again, not to make you cower in fear, no. John was cowering in fear when he heard this voice. It fell down, and Jesus put his right hand on it and said, don't be afraid. I believe the Lord wants us to live out what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in bold confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And say, Lord, I know I'm probably going to make a mistake, 
that church at Ephesus was doing great, but they, they didn't score 100. But for us not to accept that and say, well, it must not really matter to Jesus. I'll get a little Nicolaitan stuff in here, and it won't matter. Or I'll get a little playing with sin over here, and it won't matter. Or maybe he won't know. We'd be making a mistake if we live that way. And I know, I believe with all my heart, y'all don't live wanting to make that kind of mistake. I pray more and more our church at Emmanuel will not want to just play around and say, well, it doesn't matter. Surely it doesn't matter to Jesus so much. It matters. He knows. There's a church there that said they had a reputation. They had a reputation of being alive, it says in chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works and that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That'd be a It'd be a good reputation to have, but it wasn't real. It wasn't real. Oh, church, may we be alive unto Jesus. The last church, look at chapter 3. This is the bad church. This is what people say. They, they say that Laodicea, boy, that's a picture of the church, at its worst. Y'all know what, without me reading it, y'all know what, how does Jesus characterize this church? Lukewarm. Not hot. Not cold. Only lukewarm. And was that a good thing in Jesus' estimation or not so good? Not so good. As a matter of fact, what does he say? If they stay lukewarm, what's he going to do? Spit them out of his mouth. Now that's kind of a an odd picture. I don't want my church to ever be in that place. I don't want my life to ever be in that place. I don't want Smithfield to ever be in that place. But you know that Laodicea had one thing going for them? I mean, there's nothing good about them as far as what they're doing. It says... I know your work, you're neither cold nor hot in verse 15. Would that you were either cold or hot. In verse 17, they didn't have a reputation, but they had a confidence that was not well placed. In verse 17 it says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They didn't have much going for them, but they had this, which is better than everything else. They had a Savior who loved them. How do I know that? Well, in chapter 3, in verse 19, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. This is the only, ch out of the seven, how many churches did Jesus write these letters to? Seven. How many churches did he have nothing bad to say about him? Two. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Does he say those worst things about Laodicea? Seems pretty close. Laodicea says, you, you are messed up. 
but he said, I love you. This is the only church he directly says, I love you. This is one of the most amazing things about this passage. This is a passage where Jesus is saying, I know, and it matters to me. And he also says to the worst church of the bunch, I know, and I love you. And I reprove you and I rebuke you. Why? Because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. But he says, I love you. And I know you. And I know where you are. And I know what you do. And I want you to prosper. So he says, I'm standing at the door. Knocking. Open the door. I'll come in. And I'll eat dinner with you. And you with me. I don't know all where Smithfield Baptist Church is. The Lord's let you be here for, how long is that? 220 years. That's a long time. How many people have gone through the church in 220 years? This is a big church, you know that? I may have said this to you last time. This is a big church. Most of your members have already graduated. But 220 years of 50 here, 75 there, 100 there. Thousands of people have been members of this church. And I trust that many of them are with the Lord now. It's a big church. And it's a church that's loved by the Lord. It matters how you live. It matters what you think. Matters what you teach. Doesn't matter if it's in the Sunday school room out there or from this pulpit. Matters what attitude you have. Matters what motivation you have for doing the things you do. Don't lose your first love, church. Hold fast to what you got. If you got little, hold fast to it. If you're weak, let Jesus be your strength. If you're self confident, do away with that. Be confident in the Lord. He knows you. knows your hearts. If there's anybody here in the sound of my voice that you don't know this one who knows everything, I counsel you to turn to Him because He's one who loves even sinners. How do we know that? Well, He loved that church that was messing around with sin. But he gave his life to do what? To cleanse us from our sin in his own blood. Jesus died for not perfect churches, because there were none of them. Not for perfect people, because there are none of them either. Those who are whole and healthy don't need a physician, don't need a doctor. But the great physician Jesus came to give his life for sinners. Oh, he loves sinners. But he doesn't leave us like that, does he? He changes us. If you haven't been changed by Jesus, give yourself to him by faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your love, and your kindness. We pray, Lord. Lord Jesus, you who know all about us, you are good, you are holy, you are true. Lord, we pray that you'll help us that 
every thought, every motivation of why we do what we do, all of it we'll give over to you. Lord, help us to walk wisely with tenderness, with humility. Oh Lord, help us, we pray. For anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, would you draw their heart to yours that they might say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to worship you. I want you to change me. I want you to save me. Forgive me of my sin. Let them call upon the name of the Lord. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.